The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome. Welcome back. Very to <laughs> We've Got Mail. This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. Uh, for the purposes of this podcast, you can call me Rockmeister McCool, and you can spell it however you like. It's a nickname I made up for myself, and now I have to live up to it. Uh, most people don't get to pick their own nicknames. And I would like to thank I, the Crickets I, I, for joining us I mean, tonight. I don't know if you can hear them, but they're quite loud in our ears. We live uh, right next to the uh, the old site of a strip club. The mm. strip club, uh, over the years, just became seedier and grosser as time passed. And they eventually just tore it down. But they tore it down right at the beginning of lockdown. And I think a lot of construction projects were canceled. So it's just turned into this big, overgrown field. Yeah, it was a full vacant of animals lot. and bugs. It was a vacant <laughs> lot. And now it is full of giant shrubberies. Mm. I think you said there were rabbits there now. I saw some rabbits. Uh, we, we're I, in the middle of Los Angeles proper. I don't know where the rabbits came from, but they found the place. There's some stray cats in there. I think yeah. I saw a coyote the other day. And I, uh, It's this close to being dubbed mm. like a protected nature preserve. Almost. Like, it's really incredible. Well, unfortunately. Unfortunately, people have started throwing garbage in there, so now it's just it's just gross. But, Thanks, uh, humans. You ruined it. Uh, but I did go wandering through there one afternoon, and I found a, a wild tomatillo plant. Ooh. I found some cherry tomatoes. There's just like food growing out there. That's it's amazing. wonderful. It's really it's really quite beautiful. But in any case, it also means we got crickets. Uh, I when I was in film school, we had a uh, like two or three sound stages where people could shoot their short films and mm. studio films and. Uh, one of them had a cricket in it. Everyone hated that cricket. <laughs> you can never find those things. No, they can never find the cricket. And everyone's just like, oh, it's ruined our sound for, for months. And then one day I found the cricket. Mm. And I didn't tell anyone. Because <gasps> I was like, what are we supposed to do? They're going to kill it. They were so mad. Everyone kept saying they were going to kill it. So just I couldn't trap it in a cup and throw it outside. No, it wasn't that kind of a day. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, this is We've Got Mail. We're already off on a tangent. We've Got Mail is the podcast where you, you, the listeners, are able to write in and control the conversation at the Critically Acclaimed Network. The email is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. You can write in with questions, comments, concerns. You want to have Whitney and I to editorialize about something, review a movie you, you liked, if we've seen it. Mm. Um, whatever you want, really. We're pretty much open books. Uh, and uh, we don't like to dilly-dally too much right up at the top, even though we did this week. Uh, so let's just jump right in to our first email, Whitney. Absolutely. Here is a letter from Ben. Hello, Ben. Hi, uh, Ben. Hello, Bibbs and Whitney. Or, or rather, it says Bibbs and Whitty. Uh, on a recent podcast, I heard you say that Die Hard was the best screenplay ever written. Maybe not in those words, but that was the gist. Um, What's I, up there? I know I know. we often quote uh, Tom Lennon and Ben Garant. Uh, mm. Hit-making screenwriters who, uh, by their own admission, write crap movies. Yeah. 
that make them a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, they did like Night at the Museum and Herbie Fully Loaded and Taxi, you know, these big commercial things. And they said, if you want to be a screenwriter, just watch Die Hard all the time because that's going to teach you everything you need to know about screenwriting. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, uh, literally, literally the next day, I found the new documentary series on Netflix, The Movies That Made Us. The first one on the list was Die Hard. It was explained that the screenplay was based on a book that was written to be a movie for Frank Sinatra. Yeah, that would have been weird. passed because by that time it was, uh, by the time it was ready to be made, he was too old. They shopped it around to all the standard action stars. When everyone passed, they landed on the guy from Moonlighting. Being late in the process and wanting to punch up the comedy part before, uh, for Bruno... This current screenwriter was churning out the script as uh, as they were filming. They also said that they would go around the Fox building that was being used as the set and decide what to do based on what was available. I'm amazed such a great movie was basically thrown together while filming. Are there any other movies that uh, that you're aware of that had a crazy production and turned out to be great? Very interested in to hear your take on this. Uh, thank you. Ben, P.S. Please do Clerks the Animated Series. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um... First off, we've been uh, we've been teasing Clerks the Animated Series on our podcast, Cancel Too Soon, where we mm-hmm. review TV shows that lasted one season or less uh, for many, many years. We'll get to it. Mm-hmm. Someday. <laughs> but we'll get soon. To it. We'll get maybe to later, it. maybe we'll, soon. We'll get to yeah. it. We like to save the big ones for special occasions. Big, uh-huh. like, you know, 50th episodes, 100th episodes, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Uh, but we'll get to it eventually. Believe me, it's, it's on our radar. Mm-hmm. Um, regarding uh, movies with horrible productions that somehow even miraculously turn out not just good, but great. Uh, Die Hard is but one example. Mm. And it really throws a, a, a big old wrench into the idea that the best kind of filmmaking are these kind of auteur projects where everything goes exactly according to someone's yeah, somebody distinct has a, vision. A, a pure vision from the start, and they're able to just sort of lay yeah. it out in their minds and then shoot it perfectly. That's not typically how it works. Movies are, even on the smallest level, a collaborative medium. You have to talk to other people. You have to. I mean, like, there. I guess there are a few exceptions here, but the vast majority of cinema involves collaborating with actors, mm-hmm. cinematography, lighting, production design, costume design, sound design, musicians, producers. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a million people, sometimes literally, who have some sort of say mm-hmm. in the way a movie turns out. And it is part of the responsibility of a director and in some cases also a producer to make sure everyone's on the same page. But shit happens, almost inevitably. Something will go horribly wrong, mm. and you just have to do what you can. Quite famously, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, considered one of the greatest action movies ever made, actually made by people who were big hit makers at the time. Uh, cast had dysentery. <laughs> <laughs> and there was this whole big sequence that was supposed to be uh, uh, Indiana Jones fighting off uh, an expert swordsman. And he was going to, like, use his bullwhip and, like, throw some things around. And uh turns out they had dysentery. And he just, like, can I just shoot him? And they did. And it's uh, one of the more memorable moments in the movie. Yeah. Some people say that it's a little bit apocryphal, but I have heard people from the movie tell that story. So yeah. it's clearly at least nuggets of truth. Yeah. In there. No, no film production goes as smoothly as you think. And yeah. uh, what I hate about the 24-hour news cycle is uh, when some big blockbuster has to go back for reshoots because they didn't get a certain angle or they need another take. 
uh, it's treated as if something disastrous has happened. Mm-hmm. Like, this happens on every film. They go back and reshoot stuff. It's actually incredibly common. That's planned. Yeah. They, they schedule out time and budget for such things. And uh, the, the idea that it needed to be perfect the first time through is... That never happens on a film set. Uh, if yeah. you've ever worked on a film set, you know that's not the way it works. Um, that said, there are some films that uh, just are notoriously troubled productions that still produce good films. The Wizard of Oz is a famous example. Oh, yeah. They went through like um, three different directors yeah, on The Wizard yeah, of yeah. Oz. People started like getting seriously injured from like poisonous makeup. Yeah, it was Buddy Ebsen who yeah. played the, the Tin Woodman got... Po- poisoned by the makeup and had to, or I think it was an allergy maybe something the makeup the metallic makeup was causing a serious health issue for Buddy Ebsen and he had to leave the production mm. uh, so that one of many horrible mm. problems that happened on that set Apocalypse Now is legendary yeah. for how there's actually a whole documentary just about how shitty the production of Apocalypse Now is it's an award winning documentary called Hearts of Darkness or is it Heart of Darkness Heart of Darkness Heart of Darkness of Filmmakers of Apocalypse no, Heart of Darkness was the novel. Hearts of Darkness was okay. the, the documentary. Uh, but Apocalypse Now, of course, is a, a Vietnam film directed by Francis Ford Coppola, and it is an incredible achievement. It's gigantic, and it helped revolutionize the way sound design was done in movies. Um, and Incredibly it's, intense film. And it's, it's incredibly well put together. Well made? That's another thing entirely. <laughs> and you hear the stories about how that thing was made, about how... Like, Marlon Brando showed up, like, having completely, like, changed his entire physical appearance and just told Coppola to deal with it. Everyone was doing drugs. Uh, Lawrence Fishburne is in that movie as a young man. Mm. And by young man, I mean underage teenager who faked his age in order to get into the film. And they just sort of went with it. Mm. Apparently, like, his parents had to send a member of the family to go to the set to tell him, stop doing drugs, do your job, and come home. Like, a mess. Yeah. Uh, Casablanca is another one. Well, Casablanca, I, I don't think was a troubled production, but it was just a pat, typical studio well, production. I, I, don't think, I don't think we're saying Die Hard was a troubled production either, but it was a messy production. Yeah. yeah. And indeed, uh, Casablanca was also being written on the fly. And the mm. famous story that I've heard is there's an important scene in Casablanca uh, where at Rick's Cafe, uh, where everyone is allowed to come regardless of politics. Nazis, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the French, uh, refugees, they're all there. Uh, And the Nazis are forcing the band to play the German national anthem. Mm -hmm. And Rick... In a, in a, and uh, uh, Rick nods to the band to play the Marseillaise instead. Yeah. Which is a big moment for Rick because that's him actually taking a stand for one of the first times in the movie when he was trying to stay out of politics altogether. Um, the story goes that when they filmed that scene, they had no idea what he was nodding at. They would just no, figure it out in the hey, editing hey, room. Hey, yeah, here's a, we have a shot of him nodding yeah. at something and you know, yeah. we're going to edit him. Um, Terry Gilliam famously oh, uh, practically all, every movie he's ever none, done none of his movies have ever gone smoothly uh, what's the common thing it's Terry Gilliam maybe he has something to do with it um, but also he just has had a horrible run of bad luck there's yeah. a, a documentary film about uh, called Lost in La Mancha mm-hmm. which is about how he tried to make a Don Quixote movie and it, that fell apart and one of the actors got really sick and Planes were passing overhead at unopportune times, so he couldn't do uh, what he wanted to do. But uh, however you feel about Terry Gilliam, the man, uh, famously a creep, um, 
Uh, and uh, no matter how you feel about his movies, if you like his movies, understand that he had to push through a lot of horrendous uh, conditions to make to put those movies up on screen. Yeah, uh, there is a movie, a book out there uh, that was put out in the late '90s that we actually had to read for school called uh, called Monster. It's by John Gregory Dunn. Okay, and it was about the making of of all films, up close and personal, which was. These days, a not-at-all-regarded romantic comedy with Michelle Pfeiffer and Robert Redford from the late 90s. And the story goes that mon- the film came out, it got some critical accolades, it made some money, people liked the movie. Not a huge hit. Not remembered. But the journey from turning the book it was based on, which was actually this like really kind of hard-heading, edgy thing with a lot of you know, like, suicide attempts and abortions and all these really big melodramatic moments... Uh, and how it kind of turned into just this really kind of gentle romance and all the way the Hollywood system squeezes and mutates things until they get it into whatever film they're planning on making. Uh, it, it's, it's a really illuminating process and it does reveal that there's never a straight line from inception to finished product. Yeah, and product. again, and again, it really doesn't matter what the movie is. You know what? I, mo- yeah. I, right. I, I think... These days when, like, they're planning out entire series of movies, yeah. more than ever they're trying to project the illusion that, like, there are just a few creative minds in control of all of it. Mm-hmm. So I think people are willing to look for the stronger connections, perhaps, rather than just enjoy these things as individual chapters, even though they're also just making those things up as they go along. Yeah. Remember the Inhumans feature film? No. <laughs> they were going to make one. They really did. But they had to change plans. Yep. Yeah, they announced it. There was this big announcement. We're going to make an Inhumans feature film. Oh, wait. It was one of the first things announced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, never... let's, let's not actually do that. And then they turned it into a TV series, and it sucked. It's really bad. <laughs> it's really, 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 really bad. I thought of another one, actually. I almost forgot. Uh, Jaws. Oh, yeah. Jaws was a, was a big, big, big... Big problem on the set. Like the shark didn't work. The shark recall. didn't yeah. work. Uh, Richard Dreyfus said something to the effect of, "We started making Jaws without a script, a cast, or a shark." Mm-hmm. Uh, the actual production was supposed to be like two months, uh-huh. and it ended up being closer to like six. Like that's how over that's how over schedule they mm-hmm. were. Um, Boats sank. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was a mess. Uh, remember the story? Do you remember when Titanic was coming out and they told a story about how one day on the set of Titanic someone sparked, uh, spiked the craft service with acid? I didn't hear that story. I had heard this story. I don't know. I, this is a this is a distant memory now. And I'm, I'm wondering now if I could look this up how true it was. <laughs> I can't but possibly. I, be I, I don't know, yeah. man. Would you really be surprised? That was another one that was supposed to be this like I, I, on giant t- overdone. If if it's like they're making a trauma movie, I'd buy it, but uh, not on the set of Titanic. No, okay. somebody would just sneak out. I'm gonna see if I can look set. this up. Yeah. But anyway, anyway, the long and short of it is. A lot of great movies overcome production difficulties, yeah. and a lot of bad movies get made with relative ease. It's mm-hmm. not really, that's not really what comes together. What happens is it's, it's talent, creativity, and sometimes just a lot of luck. Sometimes it's just pushing through. I've noticed the, the films that have like the quickest, uh, maybe not smoothest, but most direct productions are the guerrilla style films. We just uh, did a commentary track for Cecil B. Demented, which is about a film about guerrilla filmmakers who are just going out onto the street and shooting. 
And if you have sort of a cavalier attitude about filmmaking, you're going to get the shot that day. Mm. I want this shot. How do we do it? Okay, let's do it and move on. Of course, the the resulting guerrilla film may not be like the slickest, biggest production, mm-hmm. but you're going to get the shot, right? I Okay, I looked up the Titanic thing, and I'm going to say this right now. Oh. You were right. No one laced uh, the uh, craft service with LSD. Mm. They used PCP. Oh, see, that's different. That's going to get them to work harder. <laughs> <laughs> they was, it was apparently I, in the I soup. I nailed my hand to a board and I can't feel it. It was in the soup and more than 50 people had to go to the hospital and the person who did it was never caught. So it's basically wow, like that movie just Climax. Got away with it. Imagine the movie Climax but on the set of Titanic. That's wow. what happened. Hey, Gaspar Noe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That, where, we where got are a sequel you? for you. <laughs> Climax 2, Titanic. Anyway, thank you for the great question. Right. Let's move on. Uh, here's a letter from Isaac. Hi, Isaac. Hi. Uh, dear Bibbs and Rocky. Hello. Uh, my name is Isaac, and I'm an African-American who was born in 1993. So I am a late-stage millennial. Okay. Before I go any further, I want to make sure to completely give my support to Gen Z and how they're calling everyone out on their bullshit, including us millennials. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, uh, I heard... I saw a conversation between a couple Gen Z people on uh, just on some social media site, and mm-hmm. uh, this is something I'll always carry with me. They said, uh, look at millennials. They're all like, look at me. I'm a Hufflepuff. Piff. Do a line of Coke and grow up. <laughs> I love it. Love it. That's, that's very do a line of Do a line of Coke and grow up. Before I... Uh, I tru- I don't truly think that I am the focus of these critiques because I'm African-American and my perspective of growing up in America is extremely different than that of a white millennial. Hmm. At the same time, I can acknowledge that the numerous failed indoctrination techniques used by schools has affected me greatly and has in turn caused me to rethink and work on removing some of these issues. Every new generation should be encouraged to point out the issues of the previous generation, uh, generation's mistakes uh, on or were downright ignored and pushed completely in a bad direction. Uh, that being said, I can't help but laugh at millennials because they almost represent the middle child in the evolution of America's consciousness. By that I mean, everything Gen Z is exactly what we were told not to be. I'm sure you both have your own stories of how society tried to hold you back. The thing I think is missing from Gen Z, and particularly white Gen Z kids, is that the film, films, books, and generational entertainment that we idolized is all we had. For example, I absolutely love Harry Potter growing up, and uh, and with no real black characters, I gravitated toward Harry because he was like me. Apart from a world that didn't seem to want anything to do with you or so much your own family, America tries to hide you from the world and continually put you down. This stuck with me and made me seek out everything Harry Potter, including what my wand would be and what house I would be in. This was a safe space, especially within schools where enjoying things that were considered, quote, nerdy and counterculture was wrong. It created a sense of community, and when I wore a Hufflepuff shirt, it would be a beacon that would attract other people of similar ideologies or at least similar interests. Now, today, having a plethora of books and art being written by people of color and J.K.'s insane drive to tear down trans people, mm. fuck J.K. Rowling, yeah. uh, Harry Potter rightfully has almost, has almost all of that respect for me. At the same time, I can also not deny the impact that... Uh, that it had uh, that it had in the influence on me. Sorry, it's a little weird, weirdly worded. Uh, it had on me and getting into the film, books and films. Right. I guess what I'm trying to say is that I grew up in a time when people considered Bill Clinton the first black president. LMAO. I was constantly being put down by people claiming to help me. A time where gay people were punchlines in films. We lived in a time when Ellen, of all people, was considered a gay icon. I know this can be applied to almost any generation. I think I have to acknowledge that the system is fucking us all up. It's making us slaves out of the uh, slaves out of the poor people specifically and people of 
color even more specifically, and even more so, women of color. And at best, it's making white people sleeper agent smiths who are almost triggered into a madness when something threatens their way of life. This is a big conversation in the culture right now. Sure. Um, Also, I wanted to add that you two are the best white critics I've ever seen. And while the bar ends, the bar is low. You two have given me a new bar and expectations when it comes to white critics reviewing films. Thank you for taking time to read such a long message. Love y'all, Isaac. Uh, Mm. I am am honored. Mm. I'm honored by, by that compliment. Uh, it is a low bar, <laughs> and so I am honored to to even be that high. So thank you so much for that. Um, yeah, it's, well, we um, hmm. I think you and I, William, uh, we're old enough to have seen the wheel turn. Yeah, uh, we, we, we've seen the generations. Fl- I've seen, seen it a couple times now. It's happening a little yeah, faster, now, I think. Than now, it yeah, used now to, we yeah. have like a couple generations younger than us who yeah. have. You know, I, I'm seeing. I'm a millennial, but I'm an older millennial. Like, I'm mm-hmm. right at the tail end of when, like, yeah, you're, you're born, born, you're technically a millennial, but I'm yeah, right at the, the, the shift. Uh, growing up, I always considered myself Generation Y, and then in my 30s, somebody said, no, that's not a thing. You can't say that. Mm-hmm. Like, well, why not? That's what I've always said. People agreed with me. We mm-hmm. used that term, and then at some point along the way, they just said, that's not a thing anymore. So I think I just got, like carried backward into Generation X. I think you're more Generation X than Millennial. I think I'm more Millennial in, than Generation X. Yeah, in, in terms of, uh, in terms of my, my attitudes and but the things the thing. I inherited from the culture around me, I, but I guess I'm more Gen X. Here's but, the thing. You're only but like, I consumed the art of Gen X when I was younger. Right, right, so. right, right. But here, here's the thing. What year were you born? 78. I'm, I'm only four years younger than you. I know, but That's a huge generational shift nowadays. Gap. And, and that, a big part of it is because mm-hmm. one of the things that we use to delineate between generations are two things, really. Mm-hmm. At least right now. Uh, one is the ubiquity of the internet. Mm-hmm. When you Technology. And I were, yeah. Specifically the internet, though. Like, when you and I were growing up, the internet wasn't a thing yet. I mean, yeah. it existed, but it wasn't like something that was in people's houses. Mm. It wasn't readily available. It was still dial-up. It wasn't in our pockets all the time. And that completely and dramatically changed the entire framework of society. Yeah. And, and, and every conceivable way has been dramatically overhauled within the last 40 years. It's mm. nuts. But also, we tend to gauge that in popular culture. I'm, I'm sure whatever age you are, You've probably experienced a thing where you meet someone who's only a couple of years older or younger than you, and their cultural frames of reference are totally different. They haven't seen the TV shows you grew up with. Right. They haven't listened to the music you've listened to. And it's only a couple of years difference because entertainment, media, information that we consume, thanks to the internet, is now coming on so quickly and so furiously Mm. that it's very difficult to keep up. And the stuff that connects to you and becomes really influential and helps define who you are as a person and who your generation is, is a bit more fleeting, usually. Mm. There are exceptions here, things that last. Star Wars has lasted an incredibly long time. Pokemon has lasted an incredibly long time now. Uh, But mostly, these things tend to be pretty short. Mm. And as a result, it's... We're we're seeing these divides, and I think we're all getting to this point where I'm like, damn kids, yeah. <laughs> even though I'm like four years older than somebody. Like, I don't know. It's like, it well, seems a, like there's a weird division in there. And there was a weird, uh, uh, there's a, a really telling conversation in the movie Eighth Grade, the Bo mm. Burnham film, yeah. uh, where uh, a 13-year-old is having a conversation with some 17-year-olds, and they are using technology to delineate their generations, and 
they the seventeen year olds were shocked that the thirteen year old was five when they first started using Snapchat. It's like that that was because that was a divining thing for them. It's like yeah. they they discovered it was a big change. Yeah. yeah, they discovered Snapchat when they were like in junior high school. So yeah. it's sort of like so if you always had Snapchat yeah. pretty much from when you were like using a phone, mm. you're an entirely different type of person exactly yeah, yeah. like their, their experience is really really different because of the use of these apps but one thing uh, I've, but, I've, I've learned know. and I'm very heartened to learn is that this old 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 idea that new generations just don't get it and they're going to be the death of us is usually the exact opposite and while there's always <laughs> assholes in the world and there always is and there always mm. will be and we gotta try to get not give them power they'll but be, they exist old, old assholes and also young assholes yeah. everybody gets one <laughs> but what i find is that each new generation tends to be a little kinder a little more sensitive a little more aware mm. of uh you know, diversity and more accepting. And I mean, and again, exceptions everywhere. And some of them are louder than others, but I, I keep seeing this encouraging trend of like people who are younger than me mm-hmm. and people who are younger than every, like every new successive generation seems to be getting a little bit more enlightened. And that's really encouraging, and I love it. Yeah. I'll, well, but again, it also moves in cycles. You know, yeah. they're they're it's young. There are young dickheads. You know, it's yeah. it, I I can't put Maybe all I'm of an all of the sins of the world on the old, the generations older than me, and all the all hope the on the younger ones. No, 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 no. Uh, I just, but, I just, I don't find I can't be cynical about new generations. Is my point. I, yeah, I look at them I, and I, I go. You know what? That's yeah, really just, encouraging. I'm hoping for the best. Yeah, Gen Z has filled me with hope. Yeah. Um, I, I I crapped on millennials plenty, uh, and I still do. So I, I apologize for all of that, and I'm probably going to keep on doing it because it's funny. Ha ha ha! Hey, you jump on me, it's fine. Yeah. D- dump on me right back. Uh, I was like the. Uh, I literally almost called you boomer, and I was like, no, you're not. <laughs> my parents are boomers. No, I know, but it's it's an insult though. It's yeah. like um, one of my. I I was actually thinking about this the other day. Like, what is the defining line of dialogue from a movie mm. from the 2010s? Okay. Like, what's the big line of dialogue that if you look back, it's just like, that was a good one. Mm. And it might be my personal taste. It might be my personal, like, worldview. Mm. But for me, it's the line in Lady Bird where uh, Saoirse Ronan says, don't be a Republican. Don't be a Republican. Yeah. <laughs> like, for me, that's the one I keep coming back to right. over and over again. I don't know why. Well, I do know why, actually. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's... I feel like... Um, Millennials, Gen X, like we we're generations that were raised almost purely by pop, uh, popular culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I when it comes to Generation X, I think the purest version, like the the most uh, salient beings that have nothing but pop culture in their brains, mm-hmm. only consume pop culture and com- and communicate only in pop culture witticisms, mm-hmm. are the robots from Mystery Science Theater. They are are artificially created beings created by a Gen Xer who have no knowledge of actual life or the world other than what this guy put into their head in terms of movies. And every time he tries to explain what it's like to be human, he's got a very small frame of reference. Yeah, and it's always the TV that he watched when he was a kid. There's a lot of profundity in that. I've I've pitched that idea to several outlets and they all turned it down. What? Um, That's a great idea. (laughs) Damn it. Okay, that's annoying. Um, maybe I'm just pitching to the wrong outlets, but, um, but yeah, uh, and, and millennials too, they were 
although there were big dramatic events, 9-11 specifically, yes. and, and the millennial uh, milieu, uh, mm. there was this tendency to gather around popular culture as the internet was making it saturate into the culture. Well, you know, we had more and, access to art, like we, and a wide variety of different yeah. forms of art and storytelling than previous but, generations. Uh, and so, yeah, we, we experienced mm. the world through there. But uh, the, the way the uh, monoculture began to solidify was around sort of like fantasy entertainments rather than a lot of re- real-world concerns, generally speaking. Uh, fantasy entertainments are an allegory for real-world concerns, but okay, fine. Of, of course they are, but... I, someone but it, needed to say it or we're going to get another letter. I suppose so. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Stop tweeting us. <laughs> I got it. Yeah. I nipped this one in the butt. And yes... Economic hardship. Millennials had it hard. Yeah. Every generation has their own hardships, and mm-hmm. the millennials were one of the first generations to have considerably less money than the generation before them, uh, and and living living at home. So a, a lot of uh, a lot of the pop culture consumption was based on. Uh, the only thing that was kind of available to them, mm-hmm. they weren't able to sort of go out and become titans of industry because those paths were tied off. Uh, the gig economy was complete bullshit. It was from the start. Yeah. Uh, no one twenty-two, and uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, and so I feel like Gen Z is breaking that cycle a little bit. It's a little less about uh, TV knowledge and pop culture worship than it is about. Let's just get down to something a little bit more genuine. Yeah, and I'm uh, loving that. Yeah, yeah, we we again, our and, and generation. Again, I'm speaking a, in very broad course, generalities, and of course, we're only speaking through our own lens. Mm. Which, yeah, okay, listen, mm. we're 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 white Americans, we're white American and, yeah. men who are in in or approaching middle age, depending on how you want to define it. We've got our own perspective and lens. We fully admit that you know we don't speak for everybody, and nor nor can we or should we. Mm. But this is what we got. Yeah. And, you know, in the late 90s, we had this frustrating irony generation where it was like everything had to be, like, detached hmm. and sort of and sort of sh- frustrating. It was just what I grew up with. No, I found it frustrating. <laughs> I think even at the time without putting my finger on it because yeah. there was something that was really annoying about how we had to shrug at everything and we had hmm. to, to wink at the camera all the time and we couldn't just tell a story anymore and fully accept it without sort of mocking sincerity and uh, sincerity is overrated. Yeah, I get it. It's very funny. <laughs> but like, then we started having things that actually, I think twilight is actually a really significant film franchise for a generation because yeah, not everyone liked it. A lot of people actively hated it, but mm. the people who liked it genuinely liked it. They were sincere. It's uh, a sincere franchise that meant what it said. And it's, and it had a narrative simplicity to it. Yes. No one's pretending otherwise. But it wasn't ironic. Mm. It was just telling you this silly love story, and it was being 100% sincere, and a lot of people really liked it. And I think that kind of sincerity is what has tapped, what a lot of people are tapping into. Mm -hmm. And I think it's something that's really important to a whole generation now, is that art, the art that we consume, the interactions that we have, aren't something that we're just brushing off as, oh, it's just art. Mm. Or, oh, it's just this silly thing. Like, no, actually, we take it seriously. Hmm. Even if it seems silly on the surface, we we take it seriously, and that matters to us. And there's a real value to that. I, I suppose it depends yeah. on how you communicate that. There's I, always, I think, yeah, of course. But I, and I, I, think I think there's something really I wonderful think to it. Twilight is, a, is an interesting example because I, I don't think it was the sincerity that people were latching on to Twilight. Um, it, it had already come. A, 
things had already changed by the time Twilight had come along where people were just diving headlong into their objects of affection without any kind of irony whatsoever or any kind of self-awareness. That that was had already been a generation gone by the time Twilight came out. The reason why people railed against Twilight is because of sexism. Something well, for, it was something course, for women uh, that that uh, the the teenage boys resented were was gaining the same kind of cultural traction that equally immature male fantasies were typically used to occupying. I, I want to make it clear. Uh, yeah. I, I, I actually 100% agree with you. Mm-hmm. My thought was about one of the reasons why it was popular was because of its sincerity. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons why people hated it, oh. and maybe the most key reason why people hated it, was the sort of weird gatekeeping of geek culture and how if it's yeah. not made for a macho male audience, it is less than. That mm-hmm. is true, and that sucked. Mm-hmm. And that was not fair. And by the way, we long since time we put Twilight on the inner geek than Wheel and the Schmodown. Just saying. Mm. All right, moving on. Renesme. It was the name was Renesme. I just had that in the Schmodown. <laughs> that was literally a question that helped us mm. win the win a championship match like last week. Yeah. Uh, here's a letter from Clay. Hello, Clay. Hi, Clay. Uh, Dear Bibbs and Susan Smith, pronounced Rockmeister McCool. Okay. Uh, I have just every spelling of Rockmeister McCool is is correct. Yes. Even uh, if you write Whitney Seibold, he'll pronounce it right. Rockmeister McCall. I've ju- I have a simple question for you, which is, uh, what is a sitcom, and how relevant is it is that term in today's television landscape? Mm. This conversation started with a group of friends uh, listing their favorite sitcoms. When someone mentioned The Simpsons, one of my friends says it didn't count because it's animated. I, f- I found that ridiculous as a sitcom simply means situation comedy. I define it as a short form presentation, typically a half hour, in which characters get into comedic situations. It doesn't matter if it's single cam, multi cam, laugh track or not, live action, animated or stop motion. If it's the criterion, it's a sitcom. Then someone mentioned Gilmore Girls, which I say doesn't count. Although that show is very funny at times, it's driven by the drama between the characters and not comedic situations. When someone brought up The Good Place, I initially said yes, but then I realized the answer is more complicated. Shows all types have become more serialized, which means uh, there are more char- it becomes more character-driven than plot or situation-focused. Something like The Good yeah. Place has great potential for hilarious situations, but the heart of the show is the relationship between the characters. So uh, is the term sitcom now irrelevant, or does it need to be redefined? Uh, That's a great question, actually. Yeah. I love that question. I love genre studies. This mm. is really, really interesting. And uh, Gen- mostly, I just 100% agree with everything <laughs> you just said. For the record, sitcom does mean situation or situational comedy. Mm. And um, I, I've described films as sitcoms before, and some people have bristled at that. Well, I think but it depends in, on the film. In but... terms, well, in terms of structure, I've seen a lot of situational comedies. Yeah. And the idea uh, is you you just take a couple of characters, preferably clearly defined, mm-hmm. and you throw them into a situation which is broadly comedic. You let that situation play out. You mine it for as much humor as you can, and then you get the hell out. Uh, I Love Lucy is one of the most perfect engines for situational mm. comedy ever. Doesn't some episodes of the best TV series ever. Some yeah. of the episodes have aged really bad. There's some the real 50s, races. Has, I'm yeah. just saying, if you go deep diving and you pick an episode at random, there's a chance to get one that's really sexist or racist. That's a thing. A lot of them, however, are really, really solid even in a vacuum. Mm. And it's just a matter of this week, Lucy gets in it gets it in her head that one of her neighbors is a killer. And she tries to stalk her killer and find out what happens, and she ends up hiding in his apartment. And at one point, she has to hide his different things in the apartment in order not to be noticed, and she has to pretend to be his chair. That, I I think I might be remembering the setup a little wrong, but the bit where Lucy has to pretend to be a chair is a brilliant piece of comedy, and they were churning these things out every week. Yeah, Like, it's incredible. So situational comedy was typically just... 
we have a couple of characters. We're going to throw a different situation at them every time and see what they do because we have defined them clearly enough that they have different parameters, different levels of antagonism, and it's going to be pretty clear how they're going to respond mm-hmm. in any given situation. The Honeymooners, Frasier, Friends, Seinfeld, Malcolm in the Middle. Doesn't fucking matter. And and to your point, yeah, it doesn't matter how long it is. doesn't matter how many cameras are used. doesn't matter if it's animated. Genre isn't about, typically, mm. uh, the sort of physical trappings, okay? Like, a lot of those are really incidental. Yeah. It's about the actual uh, uh, recurring elements, tropes, if you will, within the narrative. But you can totally, like, it's like animation is not a genre. Animation is a medium yeah. in which there are many genres within it. Mm. So, a lot of people get those things kind of confused. Fair enough. But you're right that there are always, in every genre... Stories, TV, movies, whatever, that blur the lines. Mm. And, well, it's... Yeah. Uh, genre is, is an interesting thing to analyze because it's co- constantly evolving. Mm-hmm. We came to understand genres as to be... There were like five base genres. Yeah. Comedies, action, drama, science fiction, slash fantasy. Those two were lumped together. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and Foreign. Uh, the reason why we think this way is because of blockbuster video. Yeah. Uh, the there j- just needed to be a little bit more clear, a clearer taxonomy of feature films. So than just be, alphabetizing. Yeah, yeah. So they could be organized a little bit more clearly within a physical space. Because a they, library. Because they recognize that people would go into blockbuster and they wouldn't just look. I'm looking for a movie that begins with the letter B. Oh, mm. good. They're alphabetized. Nobody did that. What they did was I'm looking for a scary movie today. Mm. So Here's they realized scary movies. So realized we need to put horror movies in one section, and then they realized that because American audiences were whatever, we needed like, the international movie market mm. was appealing to a somewhat niche crowd. So we put all of those movies in one section. Documentaries, niche crowd, put all those movies in one mm. second in one section. But typically, yeah, drama, comedy, mm. action, horror, sci-fi, fantasy, yeah. the the escapist categories, if you will. Um, these. Genre trappings, which we're still talking about today and which people still argue about, does Alien belong in the horror section or does it belong in the sci-fi section? The reason we have those conversations is because decades ago, when video stores were invented, they could only go in one place. Mm. You only had one copy of the movie. You had to decide. And if someone wanted to look for Alien and they looked in the horror section and it wasn't there, they would ask you, where's Alien? And you would say the sci-fi section and you'd have to explain why. And sometimes it was annoying. I worked at a video store. I worked at two video stores, actually. Mm-hmm. Always annoying. But what can you do? It had to go somewhere. You had to make the call at some point. Mm. We don't have that anymore. That's not a thing. Nowadays, if you want to codify a genre, you can put all kinds of different hashtags or 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 whatever subcategories, subcategories within subcategories that yeah. you can look it up on Amazon, Netflix, Tubi, whatever, and it'll show up in all of those different places. Mm-hmm. Which is better, actually. Mm-hmm. And it makes a lot of sense. And it clarifies something that I think we really need to hammer into our heads, which is that very few, if any, movies or TV shows exist exclusively within one genre. Mm-hmm. There are almost always elements of multiple genres in anything. Yeah, like The Godfather, it's a crime movie. It's also a drama. Mm. It's also a generational well, epic. It's a period piece. Something it's, that's always rubbed me the wrong way is that the word drama 
is used as a genre. Yeah. Surely every fictional narrative has drama in it. Everything is a drama. Well, I think, I think drama became <laughs> you know, eventually any, any evolved kind into of stories st- you're supposed to take seriously. Well, That's I, basically but, but what does that mean, take seriously? I, what, what stories do I not take seriously? It's a good point. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I guess, what, I guess, the I guess the Marx story? Brothers... I, yeah, I guess the, those stories are pretty flimsy. I'm, yeah, I'm those for, are farcical. I'm, You're not there supposed for to the take gags. them seriously. I, I suppose not. Yeah. But again, that's the whole point. Like, most dramas have elements of humor in them, of romance in them. Mm. And a lot of comedies have things you're supposed to care about mm. whether this person, you know, accepts their father for who they are at the end. Or whether right. they get back together with their wife. Or whether uh, this kid finds a new mom. Yeah. Or whatever. You're supposed to care about that mm. shit. That's supposed to be dramatic. There you go. Yeah, I, I only ever took drama to mean not funny and reasonably realistic. Like, that's yeah. all it really, re- really meant. Kind of, The yeah. actual content was, was so broad. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, genre studies are really uh, fascinating for people, again, we're going back to our generation, people our age who grew up with video stores and have that kind of taxonomic yeah. habit. And I, I think... As as time goes forward, as as you know, time progresses, and we just keep on moving forward with new types of movies and new types of TV shows constantly being made, we're going to have to train ourselves to be less preoccupied with such things. Well, I think that and, serves a function, but but at the same but... time, being really aware of the history of certain tropes. Yeah, that's my point. I think genre genre isn't genre typically evolves naturally, and then it is observed, mm. and then it is codified. And then people tend to make it on purpose. Yeah. For example, film noir. Film noir is not a genre that someone said, I'm going to make a film noir today. And then they did. And everyone's like, oh, that's a film noir. I'm going to make a whole bunch of those. No. Film noir actually just evolved out of crime movies, mostly in America, in which a whole bunch of people typically... A crime story in which there was no protagonist, in which there was no hero, in which everyone was morally compromised, in which presented the world in a bleak light Mm. in which the good people were victimized or killed or eventually corrupted and in which bad people either persevered or met their rather obvious end. And then a bunch of film critics in France noticed this, like, Hey, you know, there's a big pattern with all these crime movies coming out of America and it's creating not just a crime movie, but a subgenre of crime movies called film noir that we're going to call it. They chose to call it that, Mm. which literally just means, black film like the film of like darkness mm. um and then all of a sudden everyone's like oh you know that does make sense all of these movies do fit a pattern they have tropes that uh, exist within each of them and a trope is just a storytelling element that people use over and over again because it works mm. uh and all of a sudden everyone's like oh yeah i like that and then people started making them on purpose mm. because now we're aware of that yeah and that's what happens. That's how rom-coms evolved. It used to be comedies often had romance in them. And then a movie like It Happened One Night comes out. And all of a sudden, everything just locks into place. And everyone's like, we can follow that formula forever. Mm. And then they do. And that can evolve and change. But sometimes it just fucking works. But I think the purpose of genre, if you're cataloging things, can be useful. But I think the purpose of genre in every other situation, is it's just supposed to make communication easier. Mm. It's just supposed to be able to say, well, what kind of movie are we making here? Well, it's a slasher, so it follows those kinds of basic rules. Mm. Okay, great. See, I thought we were making a monster movie. Like, no, no, slasher's slightly different. 
Mm-hmm. Sasha's got a masked killer, not necessarily supernatural. Often the identity isn't revealed until the end. Typically a killing spree happens yeah, over a short yeah. period of time. People don't usually know everyone's being killed until the third act. That kind of thing. That's a slasher movie. So now it's easier to get everyone on board and you're all making the same slasher movie. And you can also talk about, I like, I like slasher movies. Okay, great. What are your favorite slasher movies? And you can talk about films that all fit within the same conversation because you can recognize similar elements. It's supposed to ease conversation. It's supposed to add vernacular mm-hmm. that allows us to speak more clearly about things. But sometimes in, when we get excited about having vernacular, we get a little too rigid about what qualifies. And we start thinking mm-hmm. that incidental details are fundamental qualities. And that's just mm-hmm. not the case. It might even be another one of those things that uh, rises out of fandom culture. Oh, sure. It's like, I'm a fan of this genre, so I get to sort of pick and choose what belongs Oh yeah, gatekeeping is a, yeah. is a big, big, big I mean, problem. That's, I and, and gatekeeping is actually kind of the bedrock of geek culture and we're trying to sort of get away from it, but it's also always kind of inherently underneath a lot of stuff. Uh, so it can be, yeah. Uh, anyway, let's go to the next letter. That's great, um, but really great conversation. Yeah, Thank yeah. you so much. I love genre movies. Um, here it's is here's a letter from Thomas. Hi, Thomas. Okay. Um, hello, Captains, Bibbs, and McCool. Nice. Uh, hello, Ensign. Uh, <laughs> uh, sorry. Hello, Admiral. You're a listener. You're nice. in charge here. Uh, on a recent episode of one of your many podcasts, I listen to as many as I can, so they sometimes run together. Understood. Uh, th- thank you for the ambition. Uh, you briefly you briefly mentioned that Star Trek Voyager wasn't very good. I'm wondering if you could extrapolate on that a bit. When I was growing up, I watched every episode of Voyager on UPN reruns and found it fun and filled with a lot of good characters. I've never been a huge Trek guy, so I've only seen a handful of episodes of the other series and the Chris Pine trilogy. Okay. But I haven't been able to understand why Voyager is looked at as weaker Trek in a lot of people's eyes. I know both of you have a ton of Trek knowledge, so I thought you could provide some more context and clarity for me. Thank you for putting out as much content as you do. It's always a bright spot in my day when it comes into my feed. Thank you, Thomas. Uh, we probably said that. Actually, we probably said that a lot. But there's a decent chance we said this on an episode of our Patreon-exclusive podcast, All Our Yesterdays. That's our Star Trek podcast. Whitney and I are in the process of reviewing every single episode of Star Trek ever in production order. We're still on the original series. We just started the final season. We're going to get to the animated series after that. That's going to be exciting. Um. But we're both pretty familiar with Star Trek. Whitney, I think, has seen every Star Trek ever already. Uh, so far. Okay. Uh, I haven't watched the most recent episode of Discovery. I've Ooh, you're behind. So we're on an even keel. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, in the future of Discovery, something happened that made all dilithium crystals blow up. Great. They're crystals. Great. But they just blew up, and now there's no more Federation. Yeah, it was a big tuning fork in space. Just went, yeah. <laughs> um, in any case, uh, but I've seen a lot of Star Trek. I've seen most of the original series now. Uh, I've seen a lot of The Next Generation, but it's been a really long time since I revisited it. I've watched all of Deep Space Nine. Uh, I've mm. watched all the movies. I've watched some of Star Trek Voyager until I gave up on it. <laughs> and I watched some of Enterprise until I gave up on it. The difference is I got about a season into Voyager and I got about two episodes into Enterprise before I was like, fuck it, I'm out. <laughs> your, your patience is just waiting. I more, yeah, more time I'm not looking forward to getting to Enterprise because I really just couldn't with that series. Oh, okay. I hear it gets better. I'm, I, I'll sit through it regardless. I, but It's it's totally fine. Great. It's, it's, a, it's a fine show. Well, great. But I think it's interesting what you, what you bring up, though, is that you A, you like Voyager. That's mm. great. We have no complaint with that. Knock yourself out. It's all a matter of opinion. We're merely expressing ours and trying to do so in an entertaining and hopefully interesting way. Um, But you do bring up that it was your introduction to Star Trek. And I think that's interesting because I find that our introduction to 
a series, especially a long running series, mm. uh, can very, very often sort of C- skew- color, color what we think about the in- yeah, well, becomes, other things like it, it becomes our baseline. Series. Yeah, yeah, this is what mm. Star Trek is to me mm-hmm. is whatever yeah, Star Trek I saw yeah. first. I saw Next Generation first, so for me, that's baseline Star Trek. Um, a lot of people like their James Bond is the James Bond who was in the f- first feature film they saw in a theater. Mm. Like, so for a whole generation now, Daniel Craig is James Bond. To me, Daniel uh, uh, James Bond was Pierce Brosnan, because the first Bra- Bond film I saw in a theater was a Pierce Brosnan film. Mm. But there are also a lot of people who grew up with Roger Moore, even though many future generations find his films really silly. They are. Mm. That was the point. They're mm. a lot of fun. I've heard a lot of people say, you never forget your first Doctor. Yeah. When it comes to Doctor Who. Yeah, exactly. Uh, fans of Doctor Who usually tend to fall in love with the very first Doctor Who they saw. Yeah. Uh, for me, mm. I actually saw like the American TV movie, which wasn't very good. Mm. So I, I get a mulligan on that. Mm. So for me, it was Christopher Eccleston. <laughs> but uh, that was that that was very very formative for me. And even when I go back and rewatch, you know, the original various series of Doctor Who, I'm always looking back on the Eccleston and the following David Tennant years mm-hmm. as my point of comparison. Yeah. They're, they're different from this, so we can often be a little bit more forgiving of the thing that we're introduced to because it creates this sort of connection. Uh-huh. This is like this part of it is family. Uh, that's not a bad thing. But it's interesting to point out. Um, and But sometimes when we look at the whole thing in context, when we watch all of it, we start to realize just how it all connects to each other and what makes each individual chapter, entity, filmmaker, stamp, whatever it is in your franchise of choice, distinct. Mm. And sometimes we realize that the thing we, we like the most isn't necessarily the thing we're always going to like the most. Sometimes we shift around. Yeah. So if you watch all of Star Trek... I can't guarantee your opinion on Voyager will change, but I do think Voyager feels like a different series, mm-hmm. at least based on what I saw of it, than the other Star Treks, which were a little bit more. Actually, wait, I'm going to leave. The... I'm going to. How would you say Voyager feels distinct from the other Star Treks? Uh, you, I think, you'd be more articulate about it. Yeah, the the for neophytes, uh, the the premise of Star Trek Voyager was uh, a Starfleet vessel captained by uh, Starfleet officers uh, because of a really rare spatial phenomenon and the machinations of a dying alien halfway across the galaxy were swept 70 years away from home. And the series was about their uh, trek in unknown space that they were completely unfamiliar with back toward Earth and a journey that would ostensibly take about 70 years. It's actually, it's a really interesting pitch because usually it's about leaving home. It's going Mm. to the farthest distances of space. Here it's about the return voyage, which is kind of neat and adds a little mm. element of desperation to it, like the Odyssey in some way. It adds desperation. I think the most important element of that is that they don't have the backup of the Federation behind them. Yeah. How strong are their principles when they're the only ones with them? Yeah, there's no court-martials that they yeah. don't do themselves. And, there's, and no, a, there's no other ship that's going to back them up in a fight if they yeah. get in one. And it's, as it turns out, a Starfleet captain turns into a complete autocrat. Uh, <laughs> if, if you look at uh, the, the arc of Captain Janeway, it's about how she... Start more and more over the course of the series just takes deeper and deeper control of her crew. She becomes Captain yeah. Bly. Yeah, more or less. Um, and does, like, increasingly unethical things and is not called on it. Right. Uh, I didn't get to the, that uh, part in the series, so I can't speak to that part. Yeah, it, it's... Because it's about, sort of, c- concepts, that's actually a good idea for a Star Trek series. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also came at a time when uh, Star Trek was 
looking for new ideas. Yeah. Trying to break there them all. Yeah. Uh, from, from the beginning of Star Trek The Next Generation in 1987, all the way through the end of Voyager, there was never a not Star Trek not on the air. They just yeah, were there's always Star Trek. It was on this TV. big, big height, this boom of Star Trek, and then there were also Star Trek movies going on simultaneously. It was a huge franchise, mm. like especially a huge franchise yeah, for from, about twenty years there between the movies, like mm. between like Rathacon and like the premiere of Enterprise. It was pretty big. From I, I get that was just sort maybe of maybe my closing points off, but you know what I mean. That's no, I, I, well, I'm saying nemesis. There was there was a period when Next Generation was still on the air, and then Deep Space Nine was running simultaneously, and then Next Generation started to make movies, and then Deep Space Nine and Voyager run, were running simultaneously. We had a lot of Star Trek all kind of yeah. mixed up, and so uh, Voyager tried to really set themselves apart by writing broader, more outrageous stories and things that felt a little bit more to my eye like TV friendly, if that makes any sense. Mm. Less so, daring. Yeah. So they, even they, though, even though they were broader, they were still kind of like, we're mm. going to use the holodeck to make a French bar. Well, the, in yeah. season one, it was a French bar or it was, it was, it was like this little pool hall where yeah. based on something on earth where they just sort of go and hang out just so they could have some visual variety on the show. Mm. And you could tell that they were really struggling to just get people's attention they're constantly doing things like, okay, that pool hall isn't really working out, so we'll turn it into a bikini beach. And there were two two whole seasons where they were like constantly going to like a bikini beach, and there was all this like salacious material uh-huh. worked organically into Star Trek Voyager. They nixed one of the characters and they brought in Jerry Ryan in a corset, and they had her just like walk around looking like ten million bucks, and she was the draw of the show now, and all of the stories mm-hmm. became about her, and then. They, they were writing in stories where they met Amelia Earhart. They went back to 1996 and met Bill Gates, and it turns out he was using 31st century technology okay. to, to, to make Windows 95. To be fair, meeting uh, famous people in history has been part of Star Trek. For it's been forever. part of Star Trek, yeah. but they seem to do it way more shamelessly in, in mm. Star Trek Voyager. Um, and they they started wrestling with ideas that they kept returning to the same ideas over and over again. Like the the one of the characters on the show is a hologram. Uh, the doctor died during the pilot episode and they didn't have any trained medical professionals to replace the doctor. So they had this emergency, an emergency, an emergency hologram that would just sort of appear in emergencies and sort of help out and then vanish again was never meant to sort of stay on and be the doctor, but that's the best they could do for their chief medical officer. Yeah, so they have to leave him on full time, mm. and he starts, because he's starting to live more mm. and experience, have more experiences, mm. he's actually starting to become more, he's starting to actually gain free will. Yeah. Like, which, gradually over time, which is a really neat idea. I like I, that idea. I, it's, I hate that idea. Oh, fuck I, you. I, I hate the idea that, 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 I understand, like, if you're an actor, you might want to do that, or if you're a writer, you get bored with writing the character the same you way. You don't think computers learn? I think computers learn, but I don't like the idea that this really, uh, the the personality of an emergency hologram is it needs everything done sort of right now and it can't relate to other people because it's not a person and that it gradually became a person is really corny because now we're focusing more on its personal life and I don't care about its personal life. Eh. Uh, the one thing I liked. Yeah. <laughs> it was the holographic doctor. I like the holographic doctor. Uh, I liked his plight. 
Oh yeah, I, I like I, this play. I, I he like reminds his... me of Forky. Like he just wants to be turned off. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm trash. Like that's what he wants. I want to be turned off. I'm a hologram. But yeah, Stop by it. the end of the series, when he's like fighting for hologram hologram rights and writing yeah. novels and shit, it's okay, like okay, that sounds corny. I didn't get. Yeah, okay, <laughs> by the time right. we get to season seven, right. we get to see sort of the full arc of the anyway, Doctor. Anyway, Voyager started just it just started getting broader and weirder, really? and they started abandoning ideas that seemed really strong. Like, like okay, the so austerity like, of Star of Star Trek Voyager was only addressed in the first season. After yeah, that, they the just, idea that the resources had, were scarce. They just example. had whatever they needed. There was yeah. one episode where somebody was stranded in the corona of a sun and another species was going to go salvage the ship before them and they had to race to build a ship that was good enough to like go in there and do some salvage. And they just built one. Out of what? They don't yeah, say what they built it out of. They, they, they just... You- had this ship all of a sudden. You know, you would think that if they're yeah. going to build this new ship, there would be several episodes about how they need to salvage things and scrap well, or, shuttlecrafts and repurpose or, other things. Or one of the other one of the other interesting ideas is that at the time when uh, Voyager came out in Deep Space Nine, in particular, uh, there was kind of a civil war going on in the Federation. Yeah. Um, between the Federation and, uh, was it the Maquis? The Maquis, yeah. The Maquis, who were People this who wanted in... to leave the Federation yeah, because the... they were being pushed around by treaties and stuff that they had nothing to do yeah, with. Yeah, they thought the Federation was a bunch of bureaucrats who didn't really know what life was all about. And to an extent, they were right, but they did. They rejected it through violence. And, of course, there was a big war and led to a lot of great episodes of Deep Space Nine. And in the pilot episode of Voyager... Voyager is like on the trail of some of these um, insurgents, mm. terrorists, they're called, I believe, if memory serves, uh, and when both ships are sent to the other end of the universe. And as a result, they have to team up together. And so the ship isn't just a bunch of Starfleet officers. The ship is half Starfleet officers and half people who fucking hate Starfleet. Mm. And they gave up on that pretty quick. Yeah, people the whole, just the whole started ma- being nice. Really, the whole fast. the whole Maquis angle was was abandoned pretty quick. Yeah, yeah at first it's really interesting. It's really and the first officer on the ship, Chakotay, is one of the Maquis. Yeah, he's the first officer. That sucks for whoever the first officer was. Yeah, well, I think he died. He died. Yeah, <laughs> it really sucks for that guy. <laughs> but you know, but could he, maybe surely the third officer, like the lieutenant commander, was like next in line. It's like wait, this the dickhead gets to be first. I wanted to be first. Anyway, officer. we're talking about stuff we don't like about Voyager. Mm-hmm. But to to in in contrast, shows like Star Trek: The Original Series, Next Generation, and Deep Space Nine. They tend to have a stronger uh, focus. They tend to have, to have more grounded stories. That is not exclusively true, and there's a lot of really dumb episodes of every single series. Of Absolutely. <laughs> but the, overall, the baseline mm. was a little bit more, I, I hate to say grounded on a show that fantastical, mm. but a little bit more focused. Well, it was more about, yeah. uh, it wasn't about interpersonal conflicts, which a lot of Star Trek Voyager ended up doing near the end yeah. of the series. It wasn't about it wasn't, melodrama in that yeah, personal it, it wasn't a, soap opera Way. Exactly. And it, it was more about just like smart people solving problems. And yeah, it was about Voyager, philosophy. It was about war. Yeah. It was it was about real world issues mm. in the allegory of science fiction. Yeah. Comparatively, Voyager's tone was a lot lighter. Mm. Like a lot of dark stuff happens. There's all, all the stories with the Borg, but they seem, yeah, they seem to uh, do things a little bit more trippingly through Voyager. And I think a lot of a lot of Star Trek fans and, and other people as well uh, rejected that tone. It was yeah. maybe a little too brisk and bright yeah. compared to the others. I, what we had known from Star Trek. I, I don't hate Voyager and I, mm. I never finished it, but I will because we'll get to it on that podcast eventually. 
but uh, it's for me, aside from, and I haven't seen Disco mm. or some of the new stuff um, because I don't have CBS All Access, soon to be Paramount Plus. Uh, but of the Star Trek I've seen, it's it and Enterprise are the two that interested me the least. Mm-hmm. Enterprise interested me the least, least. So at least Voyager is better than that. But for me, <laughs> it's, the, it's the original four series because I think the animated series is a lot of fun and I can't mm-hmm. wait to get to it. You know, there's four Star Treks on CBS All Access right now. All right, let's move on. I think we have time for one or two more letters. Um, here's a letter from just the letter T. Well, and I'm going to read the letter however you sign off, not, yeah. not, what, not what's in the subject line. Yeah. Uh, greetings, Lucum Retsimkor, that's Rockmeister McCold backwards, and Sbbib. That's fair. Yeah, it's Bibs backwards. Uh, the YouTube algorithm, for reasons known only to itself, decided I needed to see a fan film based on the video game Detroit, colon, Become Human. <laughs> <laughs> what a sentence. <laughs> Can you imagine that sentence at any other point in human history? Any other point in human history. That, yeah. That's an amazing sentence. Uh, for those playing along at home, it is a game which follows the stories of androids attempting to liberate themselves in a futuristic, wait for it, Detroit. <laughs> The film turned out to be a moving pictures version of a flat slash fanfic and featured two male characters, one human and one android, from the game admitting their feelings for each other. More notable than that, however, was the quality of the film itself, decently written and acted for what it was, with astonishingly good production values for something that was likely made with off-the-shelf equipment. Fan productions have been around for a while, starting naturally with Star Trek, which was promptly ruined when a group of chuckleheads attempted to turn their production into profit-generating exercise, and having the friendly CBS corporate council ban even the non-commercial productions, which really sucked for those uh, who made them out of labors of love. Yeah, that was a complicated situation. Anyway... This type of thing has become more common as technology becomes more easily accessible to civilian filmmakers, which raises two questions. A, would you consider this kind of thing a legitimate artistic expression? And B, what are the ethics of playing in someone else's sandbox, even if that sandbox belongs to a soulless corporate behemoth? Uh, As ever, thanks for everything you do, T. Uh, P.S. I don't know the ethics of reading this on the air, but the name of the film is Detroit colon Evolution, if you'd ever be interested in checking out the few minutes of what I'm talking about. Yeah, everyone's more than welcome to check that out. Um... Fan fiction, as it has come to be called, mm. is an interesting adjunct of the, whatever you want to call it, the artistic mm. uh, industrial complex, where there is official art mm. and there is unofficial There's art. Can- canonized art and non-canonized art. Uh, I, I was always really fascinated by this because of Star Trek. I watched a lot of Star Trek and I read a lot of the tie-in novels. Yeah. And the tie-in novels, from what I understand, have incredibly rigid rules as to what types of stories they're allowed to tell. Yeah. In that they can tell whatever kind of wild stories they like and they can go to the future and mm-hmm. they can you know, create 100 datas and then kill them all. But there are still um, rules. But there are still rules uh, in terms of like – there are like serialized number, numbered novels and not like – what they called giant novels, which were outside of that serialized. So the rules were even different between those two different yeah. things. And like you, you weren't allowed to like change the status quo, of course, mm. like you couldn't end a book with the enterprise being destroyed or captain Picard's funeral. That was far too dramatic. Even though this is, you're just making this all up. It had to like plausibly fit within a, a certain parameters of what was going on in the show. So it kind of had to act partly as an original story made by an officially hired author, but had to kind of serve much largely as essentially an advertisement or a way to channel people toward the show. Mm. 
because it was so heavily referenced in like beholden to it, referenced hey. to it. And of course, people just because they like the characters so much decide to write their own stories featuring those characters. Yeah. Um, legally, there's all kinds of ground you can cover here. Yeah. Well, how much of this is legal? How much is it is it ethical? However, well, if you are a stickler for artistic purity, and you are the kind of person who would prefer to see original art out of somebody, out of a creator's mind, as opposed to them just reinterpreting someone else's art, uh-huh. uh, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that's unethical, but I would say that there is a certain uh, degree of artistic purity that, at the level of which I, you get to decide, that is being violated. I, I, I couldn't um, disagree more with that. Uh, um, but, well, let me, let me finish my I'll thought. let you finish your point. Uh, however, when you're dealing with any kind of original art... You're stealing, still dealing with what literary critics call the anxiety of influence. Yeah. And no matter what kind of art you're making is going to be beholden to all of the art you've consumed in your life. When it comes to a licensed property, the level of creativity may be different, but you're still dealing with something that's influencing you. Um, it just says that the, the sphere of things you're interested in is relegated to – that you're interested in creating about is relegated to – very specific media that you've consumed. Well, I, I, first off, the history of fan fiction goes back centuries. Uh, people write something cool. People like that thing. And then either... It goes because, back to, like, pulp novels of early America. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it even goes back further than that. Mm. But, like, we like a thing. Mm. We want more of that thing. More of that thing does not exist. The version of the story we want to tell does not exist. We tell that story. Mm. Sometimes people have in the past just ripped shit off wholesale and sold dime store novels with characters who are copyrighted mm. to other people. And it's a real pain in the ass to people who made it. Cause they don't make any money off of that. That's where it sucks. If you're making money off of something that is someone else's creative property, they own that. That's, that's where mm. it becomes unethical. Is if you're making money off of it, that, that's it. Um, however, you can do things like change a name or change a setting, mm. or make change a gender, or whatever, or make one a vampire. Like, it doesn't fucking matter. You can take the influence of something mm. and transform it into something else. And a lot of art, in fact, I would argue that all art mm. is a reaction to something. It's something. It's something. Yeah. It's, it's an act of criticism in a way. It's the world is not the way I want it to be. Stories are not the way I want them to be. Mm-hmm. I had to write my own. And I'm going to write things the way I want them to be. I'm going to write the world the way I want it to be. I'm going to write the mystery the way I want it to be. I'm going to write love the way I want it to be. Whatever. It's an act of creation. And what elements you choose to put in that are, as you said, there's the influence. There's mm. whatever influences you. And in some cases, it's something very specific. I am going to write the Supernatural episode that I wanted to see. Mm. Dang it. I've always wanted Spock to behave this way because he didn't behave the way I like on the show. Yeah. So I'm going to write a Spock story the way I want him to be. More power to you. That's fine. It's a fun, creative exercise. A lot of people put a lot of time and effort into that, and they enjoy it, and other people enjoy it. Nobody is being harmed mm-hmm. as long as you're not saying, I write Star Trek and I'm going to ask you for money and I'm going to call it Star Trek. And that's mm-hmm. the thing. And then, the, then, then you're impersonating something. You're impersonating the, the entity that actually owns the thing. And that's things. Um, but it's, it is real art. Mm-hmm. Of course it's real art. 
And it's easy to look down on it because you're using someone else's toys or someone else's stage or mm-hmm. someone else's characters to tell a narrative. But a lot of the art that we consume these days works on that level. Mm-hmm. Like, look at all these Marvel movies that are being made. Stanley isn't writing the, that shit. No. And in fact, Stanley is the creative credited creator of all those characters, even though he didn't create all those characters. No, I mean, he had a hand in a lot of them, well, he, but, like, no, he's, he's... He owned the company that owns the characters, yeah, but... He yeah. wrote a lot of the initial stories, but he also wrote them with Steve Ditko mm-hmm. and Jack Kirby mm-hmm. and... Jim Starlin yeah, and they all John Romita Sr. and all these wonderful creators. Um, and it's a, it's a big collaborative thing, but then after those things are set in motion, if you want to believe in artistic purity and you want to say that, like, yeah, okay, so, like, the original artists or the original... Uh, things and everything else is bullshit, then basically once Stan Lee and Steve Ditko both left Spider-Man, all Spider-Man is fan fiction. Yeah. Which is not the worst way to look at it. You could totally do that if you want. And it reminds you, and this is something I really love about Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. It reminds you that all these different versions of things, Mm. we came up with an anime Spider-Man because we didn't have one and we wanted one. We came up with Miles Morales because we didn't have that character. We wanted that version of Spider-Man. And those have validity too. I think the the thing we're forgetting to address here, though, is uh, is that the legality of it is uh, kind of crucial. Well, uh, yeah, which, why, which is why I'm, which is why I think when you yeah. monetize it, yeah. you're crossing the legality yeah, but, line. If you're just doing it for fun, uh, you're more than it's okay to draw Spider Man. I'm talking you're not about to make money off of drawing. I'm talking Spider-Man. about sort of delineating between what is a, just a Spider Man story and what is a quote official Spider Man story. Yeah. and it's the thing that's owned by the corporation. That uh, that is sold on mass to people. That is causing people to go out and, and make their own fan fiction. Exactly, and you can't yeah, put a copyright symbol mm-hmm. on your version of a Spider-Man yeah. story, but you're allowed to write it and but say, if, "I wrote a Spider-Man thing." No money was exchanged yeah. hands. So, but if if you were to do something with, say, a classic piece of literature like um, Ophelia's Revenge, yeah. she didn't drown. She comes back from the dead and kills something Hamlet. That's in public yeah. domain. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that has uh, less of a kind of creative stigma about it because it's not based on a commercial enterprise. Mm, good point. Yeah. That's a good point. You're yeah. right. That's but, an interesting point. And and I feel like and indeed a lot of like what, big the way are we that. the way we think about commercial characters and the way we think about commercial stories is very different than the way we even think about older public domain stories. Yeah, uh, and in fact. Playing with licensed toys is more popular a hobby than playing with unlicensed toys. Mm. Uh, because with a few well, here, Dracula. Here's, here's the thing, yeah. and it's because, and, I, and this this is the way the Marvel movies really operated strongly. It's the way the new the newer Star Wars movies are operating. Mm-hmm. In playing with somebody else's toys, you are taking the good feelings people already have in the popular consciousness about a certain character, a very specific way of thinking about that character and, and you using the familiarity with the character to get people interested in your story. Mm. The good feelings is something that you're kind of lifting off from the company. It's something that the readers are bringing with them. Okay. But whereas, whereas if you were to sit down and say, here's my original character, all of a sudden, there's this kind of daring conceit. How dare you get try to get me interested with something that is brand new when I already have good feelings about a Spider-Man story? But one could also make the argument that, um, you know, if we're saying that, like, okay, so I'm going to take a character who dresses in, like, a dark cowl and uh, fights a series of maniacs with colorful personalities, uh, and I'm going to call it Batman and he's in Gotham. Okay, you clearly crossed the line. Uh, okay, I'm going to call it The Shadow. 
Okay, you also crossed the yeah. line. That's a different. <laughs> yeah. That's a different character. But okay, okay, fine. fine we call fine. him the Night Man. Oh shoot, that's like, taken but, too. But you realize that there's all of these things you can. Those characters are all variations on a theme. Yeah. And if you like the type of story that is told in The Shadow or Batman or for some reason Nightman, if you're really into Nightman, uh, I read those Nightman comics. But like, I was a fan of the Ultraverse. You're clearly going after fans of a genre, or fans of a character, or fans of a of a mm-hmm. of a type of fiction. Exactly. You're, so so you're, you're doing that anyway. Well, the point the point is, I think there's a little bit of stigma around fan fiction because the heavy lifting has already been done. They didn't create the character, somebody else did, and now fans of the character are going to be drawn to your story, not because you wrote an interesting story or invented an interesting character, it's because somebody else invented an interesting character, and now you get to sort of play around with the feelings you already have I think about you, something that exists. I think you can make that argument about literally any sequel, even if the original people made it. Yeah, sure. I'm Absolutely. just saying. I'm just saying, but I don't There's think... There's a that, stigma about sequels as well. And I think I think you're right that there mm. can be and is often a stigma. Mm. I also think that there ne- doesn't necessarily need to be. And sometimes mm. when you're telling a story and you're using elements that people are familiar with, whether it's a specific genre... I'm I'm working within the very well-worn rom-com genre. Mm. And people go to that for specific rules to be followed. As long as I follow those rules and put it in a different location and add some funny characters and do one or two things a little different, I'll stand out. Even though I'm doing the exact same thing everybody always wants. Mm. And that's okay. You One could argue that, like, you know, a wholly original, no one's ever done anything like it before thing might be more exciting and... Mm. Uh, uh, really break the mold challenging as an author yeah, whatever and, and I maybe say, and maybe yeah. make history uh-huh. you can't guarantee you're ever gonna do that so write the fucking stories you want <laughs> i'm gonna say this right now write the yeah, fucking I stories don't... you want i just want to make it clear i believe that fan fiction is art it's a certain kind of art because you're working within very specific parameters but all art is a certain kind of art mm. There are downsides to every kind of yeah. art limitations whether it be creative budgetary whatever there's always limitations there's always stigma of any kind of yeah. and and, and, it, and it only becomes unethical like you pointed out when money is involved yeah when, exactly. when, when, when you're, you're when, when you're, you're impersonating marvel yeah that's a problem but if you say to yourself listen i like drawing i like drawing superheroes if you want a mural in your house that has spider-man in it i don't think marvel's going to come after you for that no one no. cares but if you start selling spider-man comic books they're going to care because that's literally what they do yeah so that's where a line can very clearly be drawn. But I've, I've I just want to make it clear. I think fan fiction is a legit form of art. Maybe not the actual, mm. like, commerce of it is always legitimate. But I believe that that is a genuine form of art. You're using the tools that you want to use to tell a story that you want. It can go as far as you want it to go and reach an audience the size you want it to go. But there are definite limitations on what you're allowed to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think... Just writing a story about a certain character, there's nothing unethical about that. Um, and the, a lot I've of people get seen, started that way. Like yeah, they, well, I was they gonna, write what they like. I, I was going to say, yeah. I think one of the most valuable things about uh, like fan art and fan fiction mm-hmm. is uh, it's actually a very instructional way to go about creating. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you might go to school, you might get some creative writing exercises, and I've, I've heard some of my friends say this who are like really like deep into certain TV shows. They go to school, they read Dickens, and they're not connecting to Dickens, or at least not yet. Mm. And when it's, uh, you know, the teacher says, write something about Dickens, it's like, well, I don't know what to write about Dickens. But I know Star Wars really well. I've seen that a bunch of times. I've mm-hmm. been watching that since I was a little kid. It's very intimate to me. 
I can write a story about Luke Skywalker. And in writing a story, you actually start to figure out the way stories operate. Yeah. Not just Star Wars, because that's probably what you're doing at first, but eventually you start to figure out like a, a much broader sense of artistry. And I think uh, if you're the type of person who wants to keep on being creative and keep on creating, I think eventually you're going to start making your own creations. Right. Actually, this is something... There's no, there, and by the way, there's no deadline on that i'm not gonna say you know you have to you have to give get, that up at some point you get point. one year where you get to like write yeah. write fan fiction and then you have to move on you but can I, do it your whole life if you want yeah, but, but I, like I, yeah but yeah i think if if your goal is to be a creative person who writes those types of stories fan fiction and fan art and you know drawing and painting if you're going to draw if you just want to paint wolverine for now Learn Wolverine. Learn learn anatomy. Learn the way art yeah. operates. Painting Wolverine, and and maybe over time yeah, maybe, you'll find your if, own way of doing yeah, that. And if you yeah. if you find a voice that goes in another direction, then follow that. Yeah. But, yeah. Actually, in this, you brought up something that I thought is I, I forgot to mention, but it mm. is kind of parallel to fan art. Uh, if you want to be a TV writer, for example, mm. let's say that's your dream. You want to write for your, your favorite TV shows, or you want to write for new TV shows, or whatever. But typically, you don't just come up with a show and then they give you a lot of money and then you run a show. Usually mm -hmm. you have to work on multiple shows for a while in the writer's room, some capacity, uh, and then work your way up to having your own show. Mm -hmm. So how do you get a job writing for an existing show? You have to prove you know how to write that show. Mm -hmm. You have to prove you know how to write multiple different kinds of shows, which is why a lot of writers have spec scripts mm -hmm. that show like, okay, I am looking for a job writing some kind of sci-fi horror TV show. So what I've done is I watched all of Winona Earp. And here's a Winona Earp script. I came yeah. up with a script for Winona Earp. It follows the Winona Earp structure. It shows that I know how to write characters who pre-exist, write them in such a way that they are behaving within character, but they're doing interesting things, interesting plot elements. I've come up with an interesting idea and it totally fits the framework. And if this was a produced episode of Winona Earp, it would be considered a good episode of the show. Mm. That is a way to get yourself out there to show that not only do you know how to write, you know how to write within an existing framework. Yeah. Will that episode ever get made? Probably not. Definitely not. Yeah. Usually, usually those things only exist as samples. Yeah, exactly. That, that literally only – that is essentially weaponized fan fiction. You have mm -hmm. made fan fiction in the pursuit of a career to not make fan fiction and, in fact, make the real thing. Yeah. So <laughs> – Make the thing that somebody else is going to write fan fiction about. Yeah, Exactly. Which is how it works. So these are actually skills. Mm. So that's great. It's also worth noting. I just want to make it clear because I didn't mention it. Fan fiction often exists to correct issues with the original text as the fans see it. Often these issues involve things like inclusivity. Yeah. yeah. Um, and as there was, and to, in order to, as, as was discussed actually earlier in this episode, uh, take art that exists kind of within a very narrow perspective and to open it up because other people see it, see value in it, and they want to see themselves in it because the world allows yeah. for that. In some cases, quite literally. And yeah. uh, that, that's, that's where the term uh, Mary Sue comes from, which is usually oh, yeah. used as a pejorative. I think it's just more descriptive than anything. Yeah. But um, Well, yeah. it, it specifically existed because it, it describes an, uh, a narrative in which someone, the fan themselves, has inserted themselves into the text and everyone in the show or comic kind of, or whatever. Kind of, kind of worships or admires them. Yeah, they are, they are the most powerful and creative, awesome person. The, uh, uh, what's, that, what's that episode of Black Mirror that they did, the Star Trek episode? Oh, I didn't see that one. Uh, that's yeah. that's like a really dark, malevolent version of that mm -hmm. with a Jesse Plemons. I forget what it's called. You can look it up really easily. Um, 
but uh, I, I for for a long time, I actually misused the term Mary Sue. I didn't. I actually wasn't fully aware of like its original underpinnings, mm-hmm. and I was using it interchangeably with just a character who was written without many flaws or any flaws. And that's oh, yeah. that's well, that's not strictly can, speaking the same thing. I can see why why it's easy to conflate those two. Yeah, things, yeah. But it's not strictly no, no. speaking. It's it's either. not the same thing. Mary Sue is a very specific thing. Actually, the best example of a Mary Sue ever is Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. Oh, is what you happens Garth on that show? No. Oh, oh, it's a wonderful series. Garth is there Marenghi's a character Dark... named Garth Marenghi? Yeah, there, in the show there is. Yeah, okay. okay. It's about it's a it's a show uh, uh, that is about a horror author named Garth Marenghi who brags that he is the only author you've ever met who has written more books than he's read, uh, and he has written a whole bunch of horror stories. And at one point, TV came a calling and said, "Would you please executive produce a TV series for us?" So he came up with a television series that takes place at a haunted hospital, hmm. and the show that we're watching is actually we have dug up the old tapes from the 1980s when this show came out and we're showing you the show which tragically never aired because the studio was obviously had terrible taste it's the worst show ever made and <laughs> we and they end up like doing like little documentaries and like conversations mm-hmm. about like you know yeah so this episode actually ran 10 minutes short so that's why it has 10 minutes worth of slow motion in it (laughs) (laughs) that's that's cute it's It's very very funny it's a very very funny show but garth marenghi the author plays the character of garth marenghi doesn't just write and produce it and even like in the credits he has like a theme song based on a tune whistled by garth marenghi um he's also the star Mm. and everyone says like how amazing he is in every single scene. That's pretty funny. It's such a funny show. It's an amazingly funny program. I've been meaning to do it on Cancel Too Soon for forever. It actually wasn't available in America for a really long time. I think that's since changed. Okay. We I, really need to get to it. I know that was, that was so the good. issue for Garth Marenghi. It was yeah. that we couldn't find it. Yeah, initially it was, we wanted to do it right away. And then like it was on Adult Swim, but then it mm-hmm. vanished. And I never put it out on home video over here. And it wasn't on any streaming service. Mm-hmm. I think it's available now yeah. that you can look it up. But it's so good. Yeah. Um, it, is, is there anything unethical about using somebody else's characters to write a story? No. Write whatever damn story you want. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Again, if if you're a stickler for artistic purity, that's not unethical. That's just being a stickler for artistic purity. Yeah, and, and even and that's just a matter of taste, isn't it? And again, yeah, like I said, yeah. you you set the parameters of artistic purity. That's yeah. that's up to you as well. Um, however snobbish you want to be about it, think, that's also up to you. Um, yeah, I think we're all a little too hung up on originality myself. Yeah. Uh, and and you know, and what is originality if if you're just yeah. taking influences from everything in your life? Yeah, um, there's a, you can only be so original now. It doesn't but really I, work. But now. of course, when you're referring to fan fiction, you're referring to something much more specific than sure. just being generally influenced. I, I guess my point is I'm just not looking down on yeah. it for not being original. Yeah, okay. Um, I, I haven't read any fan fiction I've liked, but I don't seek it out. I'm don't, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't no do, expert, I don't do yeah. like deep dive. So I'm yeah. not the kind of person to, to ask like, what's really good Star Trek fan fiction. I don't know. Yeah. I wouldn't know where to, I wouldn't even know where to look for it these days. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I read some 20 years ago and that's yeah. the, the extent of my experience. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was, that's that's an interesting question. I'm glad yeah. we got to, to have that And again, that and again, we're not experts on it. We'd love mm-hmm. to hear if any people uh, who uh, who are listening to our show, <laughs> excuse me, uh, write fan fiction, have a particular experience with fan fiction, can recommend awesome fan fiction, like fan fiction where you're just like seriously, you never read fan fiction, you mm-hmm. should read this. I don't know, Harry Potter, or Star Wars, or whatever fan fiction, because it's as good or better than the real thing. Which mm-hmm. I've heard people say. I've just never actually sat down and read it. If you have any recommendations, we would love to hear them. Mm. We'd be happy to signal boost. So mm. thank you, everybody, for listening.
Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, everybody, for writing into We've Got Mail. If you would like to write into We've Got Mail, our email is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Thank you for saying it so clipped. I wanted, well, I wanted to enunciate. All right. Um, From the diaphragm. I still remember the first time I noticed people like really enunciating every consonant mm. in a movie. It was a haunted honeymoon. <laughs> well, and that's supposed to be a, a very dramatic melodrama. Well, I think there were like yeah. radio drama players in that movie, yeah. and there's like a bit where people are whispering, but I can uh, they're whispering, but I can hear everything they say so clearly, and I realize it's because they're really hitting every consonant, <laughs> and it starts feeling more natural the more you do it. Um, in any case, uh, letters at criticallyclaimed.net. There, I didn't enunciate. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, want to give a very special thank you to everybody who wrote in and also to all of our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, uh, without whom this show and none of our shows would be possible. Uh, if you want to head on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network and join up, uh, we have a ton of exclusive content there right now. Uh, a, lot, a huge, giant backlog of whatever tier uh, you want to sign up for. You get a ton of free, uh, not free, but already existing stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're updating it as often as we possibly can. It's been a rough year, but we're, we're, we're updating it a lot. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for writing in. Thank you for all of your input. We, we are grateful to every single one of you. Who writes in, who listens, uh, who doesn't write in, and who listens. Uh, just for, for listening, for being here with us, and for just letting us keep this these bonkers conversations going. Thank you for thank you for inviting us into your homes, your cars, your mm. ears. Um, it's, it's really lonely out there sometimes, and it's good to know that you're out there, and uh, it's nice mm. to know that we can join you. So thank you, everybody, once again. Sincerely yours, Bibbs. Oh. wrong wrong, try again (laughs) sincerely yours Bibbs and Whitney (laughs) (laughs) got it wrong again gotta try again sincerely yours Bibbs and Whitney